Welcome to a podcast on fire on Ashes of Time, holy longing of the martial world. When Wong Kar-wai does a wuxia film based on the legend of the Condor heroes, things get introspective, emotional, high on mighty power and flying skills, and blur. So, welcome to this special on Ashes of Time. My name is Kenny B, and uh, with me, uh, having uh, stockpiled all the pineapple there is, because you never know when you're gonna find meaning in those, is uh, Paul Fox of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Hello, uh, happy to be here. Although, I do have some bad news. I have caught Wong Itis, um, which is uh, a kind of vertigo based on shaky cam from watching this film so many times. Um, not to be confused with Wong Phobia, which is a fear of all things Wong Jing. <laughs> I thought we were going to do a variation of uh, fear of uh, all things my blueberry nights or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that works too. Uh, and that was, by the way, a non too subtle uh, King Express reference uh, there uh, regarding the pineapple and kind of snarky, and I apologize. So uh, let's uh, get on with it. Also, with me, uh, fresh from his uh, film marathon of about 600 films at the uh, virtual uh, Toronto International Film Festival, perhaps eating pineapple, but uh, not watching a one cow movie at the same time, is uh, the other half of the East Screen, the West Screen podcast, and that is Mr. Kevin Ma. And what was the tally of the TIFF? Uh, in the end, it was 44. So. Quite a few uh, under the 600 I was aiming for, but also I should say I also have a different type of one-itis where I see everything in yellow tint and all my music I hear <laughs> is suddenly orchestral. How many days were you uh, sitting there watching that many movies? A week? Two weeks? Oh, it was about 10 days, I think. It started on like a Thursday and then it ended on the next Saturday. But of course, I mean, I went out. I'm like, I have like a show star, like a social life. I have like a girlfriend to go see. So I did go out in the middle Right. There, you know, I missed but, a few films. But, I, I complained. But the real question, the real question here is, how many of those films did he fall asleep during? They were at home, Paul. So <laughs> I started feeling drowsy. I just turned it off and I, you know, slept a little bit and then I got back <laughs> to it. So, so I, I did not miss any film because I was asleep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Watching your social media updates, watching uh, movies, it seems like a very global uh, festival to me. Just watching that number go up, you know, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, it just reeked of to me uh, like a toilet bucket situation and some sort of doc brown <laughs> contraption that uh, wipes you off and uh, dresses you and showers you off just to get that amount of movies in in that time frame but i guess the simple question is uh, you're just good well no i i just uh well i was at home anyway so i don't have to go out i don't if i if i have to watch it every one of those movies in like a physical theater i probably wouldn't i probably burn out by like day seven or day eight um, that would be impossible. Like I've tried doing that when I go to Taiwan, and I I would schedule breaks in between theatrical screenings uh, for meals, whatever, and trying not to go too hard. Like the most I would go is like four or five. Since I'm at home, actually, I was in a very comfortable situation. I was sitting on my sofa. I I, mean, I checked my phone when I wanted to. I took breaks when I needed. So actually, it was quite a comfy festival for me. Well, all joking aside, I do need to give Kevin props because, you know, aside from the extracurricular stuff he does with his festival watching, um, he's been a big part of online festivals like the Sophia's Choice festivals that they've been having over here, doing Zoom sessions with directors and filmmakers and and just really doing a bang up job. And I you know, would urge anybody who has a chance to watch those to go and, and give them a look and see some of the work that Kevin does. 
Thank you so much, Paul. I mean, I actually have to say, before all this festival stuff started, people were in the industry were like, you do, you do, you, you subtitle half the films in Hong Kong. Then now it's, you're doing all the festival Q&As in Hong Kong now, aren't you? Like, no, actually, just just two festivals. On his way to a um, global festival, uh, subtitling, <laughs> domination. Uh, but let's uh, let's uh, keep it on uh, the plugging uh, side of things. So, Kevin, uh, what uh, endeavors of yours uh, do you want to direct the listeners uh, to? So, uh, the floor is yours. Well, it uh, depends on when it's coming out. I mean, I've done a, I trans, I recently interpreted for Stanley Kwan for a masterclass for Asian Film Academy that should be online soon. That was for Finland Film Festival. Um, and then I'm also doing another Stanley Kwan masterclass for another film festival. I don't know when this show is going out, but uh, it will be sometime in mid-November. Subtitling wise, uh, I know Anita is going to be the closing film of the Busan Film Festival. So from there, it should be playing um, at film festivals around the world. And I'm also just working on Table for Six, which is the next um, Chinese New Year film by Dale Wong. Uh, well, it's directed by Sunny Chan, but Dale Wong stars in that one. Um, that should be coming out in Chinese New Year. I have some films that have been un- they're unreleased. I don't know when they're coming out, so I probably shouldn't say talk about those films yet. But yeah, I should have a couple of other subtitling uh, efforts that should be rolling out in the next half year or year or so. Excellent, excellent. Good to hear. And uh, we have some social media links for you uh, from the past that are current. So we'll certainly link to um, all of that. And uh, that's cool. These are busy times for all of us. So you guys haven't uh, obviously been uh, doing uh, weekly podcasting, but uh, you, ha- you have a, a grand uh, podcast uh, archive. So, uh, Paul, uh, why don't you plug that and tell the kids uh, what they can find when you go to uh, your website or subscribe to your feed? Yes, uh, it is uh, East Screen, West Screen. You can find us over at Comcast.com. And unfortunately, we are on hiatus once again. That's mostly uh, on me because of a couple things, lack of access, uh, you know, medical issues with the family, lots of stuff going on. And uh, But a big one is access. So there's just not a lot of access to Hong Kong stuff currently over here. And I hope to rectify that in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but for now, we've still got plenty of shows to go back and listen to in the archive. We'll link to all your endeavors. Uh, let's get going. Uh, a little rundown before we take a music break. Uh, uh, and this is uh, what's uh, coming up in this episode. Uh, we're going to talk some surrounding topics and not just Ashes of Time as a movie. Uh, Timestamps will be available in the show post so you can navigate the episode if you wish to do so. First, we'll talk uh, Wuxia author uh, Jin Yong, aka Louis Cha, whose characters Wong Kawai is uh, depicting. Uh, we'll uh, then uh, go into a little of what led up to uh, Wong Kawai directing Ashes of Time, so we won't do the entire career retrospective. Uh, we'll talk about its reception and some notes on the Ashes of Time Redux cut. Uh, but we'll, t- we'll talk about uh, his uh, uh, Redux uh, cut that he prepared years after the film's uh, release, and then we review and discuss the film, so we only got one over here. Uh, we're going to take a short music break, and uh, after that we'll be back with the plot uh, breakdown and uh, some notes on the author of uh, Legend of the Condor Heroes, that um, whose uh, characters... Uh, Pop up here in Ashes of Time or Wong Kar Wai style, so we'll be right back. And welcome back. And uh, the uh, 
the episode is about Ashes of Time from 1994 and first of all a plot from the Hong Kong digital review of the film and this is going to be a little bit lengthy but uh, bear with me it, it's a complex movie anyway so maybe it's not even worth doing a plot breakdown but I'll, I'll do my best here uh, it uh, the movie centers around uh, the cynical world weary Ouyang Feng aka Malicious West, uh, whose uh, interior monologues uh, set up mo- much of the narrative. After 10 years of fighting, uh, Ouyang Feng, played by uh, Leslie Chung, has retreated from White Camel Mountain into the desert, where he runs an inn and solves problems as a middleman for people uh, with the right sum to offer. He is visited annually by Huang Yaoshi, aka Evil East, played by Tony Lung Kafai. An old friend with similar views on life who was taken up with the woman uh, Ouyang spurned a decade earlier, played by Maggie Chung. A year earlier, Huang promised to marry Murong Yin, played by Bridget Lin, the sister of swordsman Murong Yang, also Bridget Lin, but later reneged on that uh, promise. And now uh, she, Yang, uh, rather he, so to say, has come to the inn seeking vengeance and engages uh, Ouyang Feng to kill his old friend. However, it becomes apparent that the two are young that yin and yang may actually be the same person and in another episode a young girl played by charlie young with nothing but a mule and some eggs offers them to uh, oyang in in uh, payment for wiping out the bandits who killed her brother but the innkeeper balks and advises her to offer sexual favors instead uh, an all but blind swordsman played by tony lung chuai here out of chang chi uh, needing money so that he may return home, he is hired by some villagers to slay the horse thieves who have been tormenting them, but is slaughtered when his sight finally fails him. And uh, sort of final uh, in one of the final episodes and one of the final characters to focus on skilled young fighter Hong Chi, Jackie Chung, accept the girl's. Uh, uh, offer, Charlie Young's offer, and decimates both her brother's uh, killers and the remaining horse thieves, but in spite of his great abilities, cannot be a good husband to his long-suffering wife, whom he stubbornly refuses to bring along on his martial adventures. So that's the kind of uh, episodes that uh, we fade in and out of in this uh, non-linear experience. We'll get to that. Uh, we mentioned Jin Yong or Louis Chan. I think it's wise to start at this author stage, uh, talking of the man that came up with the source material for Ashes of Time and even the comedy Eagle Shooting Heroes. So it, it is said, and we'll, we'll get to this, that the Ashes of Time might not be the most faithful, you know, straight from the text adaptation uh, out there, but uh, it certainly is uh, his characters and uh, he's uh, worth talking about. So again, Jin Yong, who's, uh, which is his pen name, uh, real name, Louis uh, Cha. He's a writer and novelist of Wuxia novels who, along with fellow authors Gu Long and Liang Yusheng, were collectively known as the free legs of the tripod of Wuxia. Uh, jumping ahead a little in his life and closer to his distinctive career kicking off, uh, Louis Cha met uh, Chen Wentong uh, during his journalist days, and uh, Chen published his first Wuxia novel under the pseudonym Liang Yusheng in 1953. So the two legs of the tripod of Wuxia became friends, and this is inspired Louis Cha to head in the same direction as he started to work on his first serialized martial arts novel, The Book and the Sword, in 1955. Flash forward to 1969, and Cha co-founded the Hong Kong newspaper Ming Pao, where he served as editor-in-chief while also uh, writing his uh, serialized uh, novels and editorials for the newspaper. And he was a busy bee that could write to the tune of 10,000 Chinese characters a day, and earning a large following in the process as he... um, pumped these stories out, these episodes out, and at one point he even got involved with the Great Wall movie Enterprises and the Phoenix Film Company as a scriptwriter, and uh, Louis Cha even uh, co-directed two films in 1958 and 1960. 
1972 though, he put the pen down. And instead he felt like time should be spent going over his past works, uh, revising if you will. Because uh, I can just imagine that uh, pumping out serialized um, content, you can't um, obsess over it for long amounts of time. You need to produce and, and get it out there. So perhaps he had it in the back in the back of his mind that this isn't thoroughly developed, but um, I gotta get the next part out. So um, he went uh, back to uh, revising, and uh, uh, the public uh, who didn't catch uh, these uh, episodes in uh, in Ming Pao, they got a chance to own a definite. Uh, definitive edition of his works um, released in 1979 but Jin Yong fever didn't die down in the 70s just because there was no 10,000 Chinese characters per day output anymore because there's been continual manifestations of his work uh, since as adaptations took place made for the big screen but also for the small screen i.e. TV and those adaptations could be found across Hong Kong, China and Taiwan and uh, the characters across his works really cemented themselves in the public consciousness, even hugely so via the written works and not just the visualized ones for TV and film. And Louis Chad died on October 30th, 2018 at the age of 94. But again, the works are very much alive and let's, um, let's mention some of them. Uh, Ashes of Time, for instance, was inspired by characters out of Legend of the Condor uh, Heroes. Uh, and uh, while the Wong Kar Wai produced Eagle Shooting Heroes uh, was a parody of the novel and its um, uh, characters. Uh, uh, this was the first part of a serialized trilogy that was followed by The Return of the Condor Heroes uh, and The Heaven, Sword and Dragon Saber. This all dates back to the late 50s uh, when the serialization of, um, of it all began. And it's really considered his magnum opus by critics. Uh, Legend of the Condor Heroes was adapted into multiple TV series in 1983, 1988, 1994, and as late as uh, 2017, unless uh, Paul has found something even more recent. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly get to that. Uh, as was a, a return of the Condor Heroes in terms of ad adapting for TV, and that including a, a, included a 1983 TV series starring Andy Lau. Uh, the Heaven, Sword and Dragon Saber got a two-part Hella Complex uh, movie adaptation at uh, Shaw Brothers, uh, directed by Choi Yun and starring uh, Derek Yi. And uh, the Jet Li vehicle Kung Fu Cult Master, aka Evil Cult. That was the start of the adaptation of The Legend of the Condor Heroes, but, uh, but really ended uh, very quickly. It ended on a cliffhanger, and that was all she wrote. They, uh, Wang Jing uh, didn't go back to that well and uh, completed, at least made another part, so Kung Fu Cult Masters were really incomplete. Uh, Sword Stained with Royal Blood was a 1981 Shaw Brothers film uh, by uh, director uh, Chang Chien. I believe, I believe that's the name of the story, uh, but uh, Paul, Paul or Kevin might correct me if I'm wrong. So Sword Stained with uh, Royal Blood. And uh, the Swordsman series with uh, leading men such as Sam Hoi and Jet Li, they were reportedly loosely based on Jin Yong's The Smiling Proud Wanderer. And uh, the ride and wave of popularity it wasn't all smooth, though, as some of his uh, novels, Lewis Chas' novels, were banned outside of Hong Kong for political reasons. Um, in the 70s, in the Pe People's Republic of China, some of the works were considered to be satires of uh, Mao Zedong and uh, Cultural Revolution, while some works were uh, banned in uh, the Republic of China, uh, Taiwan, uh, as they were perceived as being in support of the Communist Party of China. Which is not a problem nowadays if you're a customer and want to pick up a complete collection in China and Taiwan. It's not uh, banned as far as I know uh, uh, anymore. There was a somewhat more recent controversy uh, in uh, 2004 in China. An excerpt of Louis Cha's story Demigods and Semi-Devils was included in a senior high school textbook. 
and opinions were divided on this inclusion, some saying popular literature is a good inclusion, while others uh, didn't think Lewis Child's work uh, was suitable for high school uh, students. But what came of this, I can't say if the text was removed or not. So before I ask my uh, my actual scripted questions, did anyone pick up on that story? No, that story if, uh, it was a big hoopla and they started uh, deleting that uh, section in the textbooks in China. I, I have no idea, but as far as I know, Lewis Cha's work is, is not banned in China, so I, I don't think anything came out of that. So yeah, that's a little snapshot of Lewis Cha as uh, Jin Yong, and uh, I don't actively look for his film adaptations personally. I stumble upon them exploring Hong Kong cinema, but uh, it really has never motivated me to pick up any translated novels of his or watch a TV series, but I know Paul is our resident hardcore uh, wuxia novel and TV fan. Uh, so is that all directed towards uh, Jin Yong, or have you explored uh, you know, the Gulong adaptations in film and TV, for instance, as well? Uh, yeah, I'm a huge, huge Louis Cha fan. I mean, I've seen uh, some of the Gulong stuff that's made its way into film. I mean, he has a very extensive, perhaps even more so than, than Louis Cha, list of uh, films and adaptations and, and things he's worked on. But uh, I've always just preferred the the stories of Louis John. Uh, the the Condor Heroes trilogy saga is is my my favorite out of all of that. Although there's there's a lot to criticize within that. Not all of it holds up well, despite the the countless remakes that happen. You know, pretty much every generation. I mean, uh, the the stuff you connected to, like what what have you picked up in terms of? stylish traits in writing or uh, in TV or movie making. Um, I mean, I mean, what is the stuff you like if you can condense that in terms of uh, exploring uh, Jin Yong's uh, works? Well, I mean, if you are familiar with even his even the stuff that has been based on his stuff that's come out in the cinema, um, one of the things that is very typical is that his central protagonists are typically somebody who is outside of the martial world or the Wulin, as they sometimes call it, and they kind of stumble around. They're 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 not very good, you know, as martial artists early on. But through luck and happenstance and and their own inner goodness, they end up becoming these super great masters uh, by the end. And you you see this archetype in pretty much every iteration. Even if you look at something like the Royal Tramp series, you know, if you if you're familiar with you know the Deer in the Cauldron. You look at Stephen Chow's adaptation, more of a Mole Tao film than a martial arts film for the hero. But it's that same kind of idea that he kind of he's clever. Um, he may not be overtly good like some other protagonists, but he manages through luck and happenstance and his own wits to get to where he gets by the end of that series. And, you know, he also has a lot of plot twists that he uses over and over again. Which, if you're really familiar with his stuff, can be kind of grating at times. You know, it's like, oh, we're, we're doing this again. For, for the most part, I still enjoy his style of storytelling. If you as uh, listeners were, were to like, like I want to experience the entire Condor Hero saga, you really should go into TV to get that full picture. Or, or is that impossible because, um, you know, the, the quality varies between adaptations and between decades? It depends on what kind of experience you're looking for. I think for me, I enjoy continuity. And the only series that's really had a semblance of good continuity across the three generations, because it's a it's a the Condor Hero saga is generational. 
And what we're going to talk about when we get into Ashes of Time is an extension of that already generational series, meaning that, you know, the, the legend of the Condor Heroes starts with a new generation of martial artists. Return of the Condor Heroes is the next generation. And then the final part of the saga, uh, Heaven, Sword, Dragon, Saber, is several generations later, right? So it's covering a massive period of time. And it's real time. You know, this is, you know, it, it's juxtaposing itself with real people, fictional people, and actual events, you know, dynastic changes that happen in China. So for somebody who loves history, but also loves fantasy and martial arts, it's just a treasure trove of stuff to dig into. But there's a lot there. Um, the old TVB drama that um, was done in the late 80s, early um, period with, um, I mean, for me, the pinnacle was when Andy Lau and I.D. Chan did The Return of the Condor Heroes Saga, uh, which is my favorite of, of the three. Um, but it starts with Legend of the Condor Heroes, and they carry some of the same actors and, and characters over into Return when Andy and I.D. start off. And then I think um, Tony Lung, Lung Chu Wai, plays the central character in the Heaven Sword Dragon Saber, Saber continuation a couple years later. So that's the only one I've found that really has a sense of continuity where you have actors who were in the first series kind of reprising their roles in the second series. Now, there have been several iterations since then. There's, there, it was recently available on Amazon, but they pulled it. There's a like mid-2000s Legend of the Condor Heroes that stars, I want to say, uh, Zhou Shen and uh, Wang Xiaoming, I think, as the lead protagonists. And then it was there's there's a return that stars um, oh Kevin who's the who's the actress who was Mulan Louis Fei Louis Fei okay she stars as Little Dragon Maiden uh, and then there's a, a Heaven Sword Dragon Saber follow up all in the mid 90s but even there like um, Zoshan doesn't reprise her role in Return of the Condor Heroes with Louis Fei in, in that one they they get different actors actresses even though I think it was the same production company who was in charge of all three. The most recent iteration was uh, Legend of the Condor Heroes in 2017. Um, they have since had a 2019 Heaven Sword Dragon Slaying Saber, which is really good. And both of those, I think you can find uh, pretty easily for free. Um, I think um, I watched Heaven Sword Dragon Slaying Saber on Amazon Prime right now. And uh, if you can get access to Aichi, the English version, they have the 2017 Legend of the Condor Heroes. But these are pretty big time investments. I mean, we're talking 50 episodes um, for each series. There's a new Return of the Condor Heroes that was supposed to drop last year, and it still hasn't dropped. And I've been you know, checking forums and message boards to as to when it's coming. Some say it's coming later this year. But everybody's holding on to stuff. For TV, TVB watchers, you'll know that there's a, a big martial arts series called Chinatown, which everybody has been anxiously waiting for. Um, which is sort of a follow-up to A Fist Within Four Walls, which was really super successful for TVB as a sort of wuxia martial arts drama series. Um, and everybody's asking, like, when is it? Is it going to be later this year? When are they going to drop it? But they've kind of held off on a lot of stuff because of COVID. And, you know, I guess they're trying to position stuff to where it's going to be, you know, it's going to get the most attention. So that's the most current, the, the Return of the Condor Heroes, which is the second series is the most current adaptation that's waiting to be done so can can they even you know d drop us into the middle of it all uh, without incoherency setting in after five 
minutes. Have they been good at like establishing where we are? We're in the middle here, and characters have gone gone for stuff. With these series anymore, I mean, I, I I don't mean to speak for people in China or people in Hong Kong necessarily, but just from my own exp- exposure to the variations over the years in the movies. You know, you talked about like the Derek E. Heaven Sword Dragon Saber two movies, which is a mess, right? <laughs> Especially if you go into that watching it without having any idea of what's going on. It's just like jump, 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 new character. Who's this? Who's that? But the thing you have to understand is that these novels have been out you know, since the late 60s, you know, they were serialized in newspapers. And one thing you can understand is, especially with his earlier works like Legend of the Condor Heroes, something's happening. You're going like, oh, my gosh, this is taking forever. The reason why Legend is perhaps one of my least favorite series of the trilogy is because there's a period of like six days where the two characters are stuck behind a wall trying to heal each other in this temple. <laughs> I healed yet? No. All this stuff is happening you know, and and they're they're viewing it through a crack in the wall. So all this other happenstance stuff is happening, and they're just like stuck there for six days. And it's like, come on, get on with it, you know. But when you think about, okay, this was serialized in a newspaper, you know, day to day, people are just reading bits and pieces. Then you kind of understand how that why the pacing feels so weird. He really improved later on with his his later stuff, I think, on that. Um, but it can be hard, you know, for for newcomers to kind of get in there. But what you're seeing is. People know these characters. They know this story for the most part. I mean, they, they don't know it perfectly like super fans do, but they for them, it's like watching a new iteration of Star Wars, you know, just with different actors. So every generation, it's like, oh, who's playing this actor this time? They already know what's going to happen. You know, they, 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 they have the Cliff Notes idea of it because they've just grown up immersed around these stories, you know, from comics and the literature and the various shows that run 24-7 on different channels. So it's more of a case of, okay, who's playing, you know, it's like, who's playing Darth Vader this time? Who's playing Luke Skywalker this time? It's a different actor, so they're going to give a different kind of a spin on it, right? So when you see the movie versions, even like the Jet Li version, which just kind of ends, you know, in the middle of a chapter, it's like, they're really kind of just seeing like, oh, well, how is Jet, what's Jet Li's take on this character, right? And if it's unfinished, it's like, oh, they already know what's going to happen, and they've already got these... TV dramas that they can go back to if they really need to get completion in the story. But for people coming from the outside, seeing it for the first time, it's going to be like, what? what? What's going on? You know? I don't know how great of a fan you are of uh, these uh, uh, Wuxia novels, and you can certainly uh, uh, go into that and these authors. But how, how, how much of these authors and their stories and their characters, from your perspe- perspective, got caught in the public consciousness to the degree where you kind of knew their story as well, and, and the stories of the characters and their uh, this sort of massive tapestry that like could you be uh, aware of all of this without doing a deep dive well i mean for me i i haven't read any of the novels um at the first time i really fully read the story or, or watched one of these stories was actually the tv adaptation uh, of heaven's sword and dragon saber in the late 90s with um wanda wa as the, as a hero and i had no idea back then at that time that oh there were two other two other huge sagas before that and i just sort of jumped right into that tv show and i didn't feel really lost i guess because that tv series was meant to be his own series i guess to most people in hong kong at least in my generation and the ones older older um they're like pulp novels they're like marvel comics 
right? Like you you say the name, you say a name of the character, everyone knows Yang Yang, Yang Guo or Xiaorong Nu. Everyone knows them. They know that they stand for like a, the, the ultimate screen couple in Hong Kong pop culture. They don't necessarily have to even know the story, their story, or everyone, anything that came before. After this, know that these people are so big in pop culture that you say Yang Guo and Xiaorong Nu. Oh, you know they're like the ultimate romantic couple. And so, so they're kind of embedded in pop culture like that, in the point where you don't have to particularly read the novels, but you say certain characters and they and they bring up you know certain things or they mean certain things. For me, I actually earlier this year, I recently, and this is one of the interesting things I appreciate with what people are doing with these uh, Lewis Charles work, and that's what Wong Kar Wai did with Ashes of Time is that they've taken these these stories as sort of foundation and branched off into their own sort of different stories. So the same way that I think uh, Hong Kongers don't really understand how can different authors uh, take on one comic book character over the years and that there are different iterations of that same character, right, in American comic books. But what Hong Kong creators or Chinese creators have done is that they have expanded on those stories. They made up their own fan fiction, essentially fan fictions, um, stories that are sort of spun off from the original story. So early this year, I subtitled a direct-to-streaming film in China that is sort of a Joker-esque take on a minor villain from, I think, Return of the Condor Hero. So it's about one of the minor villains that is that was a, a disciple of Huan Yao Shi, Shi, the one who steals the... Um, the what you would call it? The uh, you know what I'm talking about, Paul. The steal the um, you know the book. The, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's the movie's completely. The film is completely focused on her. So it's kind of like a real, but it's of course it's not. It's it mostly it's not from the Louis Cha novel. They sort of do their own thing. They sort of create a story for her and turn her into a heroine. That's the kind of stuff that we're doing now. Is that we're doing these spin-offs of these because we're so probably so tired of telling these stories over and over again that we're expanding on it sort of fan fiction style uh coming out with spin-offs using those characters foundation and people and they fully expect the audience to just sort of get into it like that like they know okay okay oh that's why now she's a disciple that's a minor villain that was probably mentioned in one small plot point but here she gets her own film and they expect people to jump right into it like they get it i mean that gives you an idea of of sort of how 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 embedded these characters are in pop culture and mind you these aren't you know exactly high art you know they're not like uh shakespeare they're not like taught in schools they're like comic books they're pulpy and they're entertainment uh they're mass um mass entertainment and in fact there's a whole uh joke in uh septet uh, hong kong story in the uh, trey hark segment where the characters talk about how trey hark used to pretend to be reading you know literature but then he's actually reading wuxia novels so they're saying oh how he's sort of just reading comic books uh, so these are, you know, real entertainment for young people and for pretty much a lot of generations of these people who are into these sort of stories. I've got to ask, by the way, Paul, um, any any of you, Kevin, uh, because um, buying things as an allure, you know, buying something complete, a definitive collection of this and this. So, Paul, uh, have you picked up any um, definitive collection of uh, Louis Charles' work, uh, even if it is, even if it's in Chinese, because it's nice to have. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I have, um, and I've mentioned this a couple times when we've we've touched on works that he's done. There is a new four book translation of Legend of the Condor Heroes that was just released in the past couple years. I think the fourth book is out now, and that's by uh, you know Jin Young is the original author, and I think the translation is by a lady named uh, Anna Holmwood, and so that's out there, and that's a brand new translation. There is a a Wuxia, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, a Wuxia org or wuxia fan page that's out there that has done fan translations of 
all of his works um, that you can go and you can find and read online for free. So you can, you know, you can search that out if you're, if you're really looking to dig more into the literature. But again, those are fan translations. So I can't speak to, I'm not saying they're better or worse than a commercial translation, but you know, they are there for people. So you do have a lot of access. There's comic versions. I mean, I've talked about the manga version that was done out of Singapore. It's still probably my favorite version. It's um, illustrated by an artist named Wee Tian Bang through uh, Asia Pack, and they've recently released a new kind of anniversary compilation that you can buy it, but it's hardbound. It's pretty massive. The I think the original comic run is uh, 20 sort of manga sized issues, but they've They've bound this into like a massive five volume issue and it's not cheap, but you can get it. You can order it from them and they have it in English and they have it in um, traditional Chinese or sorry, uh, simplified Chinese. Um, You know, if you're looking to brush up on your actual Chinese literature skills, Uh, there's also the anime version um, that they did of Return of the Condor Heroes. Again, that seems to be of the three a favorite of people. That's why there's, I think, a bit more out there in terms of that. But the famous comic artist, his name escapes me, um, maybe Kevin remembers, who does all kind of wuxia comic books. And he was a bit of a controversial figure, but he did Heaven, Sword, and Dragon Saber. That got translated into an English version. I think there's 10 volumes that are still pretty reasonable. You can track those down um, also. So there's stuff that's out there, but it's not always ready, readily available. You have to try to you know, go through some used channels sometimes or some collector's channels. But um, yeah, yeah, the first four books are there. If you're really t- looking to take a deep dive into the literature, yeah. Come to think of it, I think my brother read the Return of the Co- uh, Condor Heroes uh, comic book series that was by I think Wang Long. I think that was the that was because yeah, yeah, he's a very famous yeah Wang Long. He's the fa- most famous uh, comic book publisher in in Hong Kong. I think he did either uh, I think either the first one or the second one. But my brother read it and it was one of those comic book series that the only only like 20, 30 pages a week and you get it every week. Yeah, he he read that. I think. If we touch upon Ashes of Time, uh, the movie movie adaptation, uh, we, we really don't have a ton of time to do Wong Kar Wai's biography here, but uh, here's a little snapshot of events leading up to Ashes of Time. And if you, uh, Paul and Kevin, if you want to fill in some further uh, uh, gaps and add remarks about uh, his career or whatever trivia you can find, please do so. Uh, at any rate, Wong Kar Wai may have logged a claim with his uh, initial features as Tears Go By and Days of Being Wild, but they were not gigantic earners by any stretch of the imagination and this resulted in trouble getting new movies off the ground that's how business works uh, going the route of uh, forming his own production company jet tone along with filmmaker jeff lau discussions along the way uh, led to an offer of directing a wuxia film based on uh, the legend of the condor heroes by uh, jin yong uh, it's too much book obviously as we discussed for one movie so Wong Kar Wai decided to explore select characters and uh, working out the narrative structure that was to his liking. Uh, one that he called quote a very complex uh, tapestry. Wuxia was of course attractive commercially in uh, 90s Hong Kong cinema and although he didn't make a straightforward swordsman dragon in type of Wuxia it, the movie did get grand superstar uh, cost uh, uh, which had worked with uh, Wong Kar Wai to an extent before. Uh, Tony Leung Chui, Tony Leung Kafai, Leslie Chung, Bridget Lin, Maggie Chung, Yaki Chung, Karina Lau, etc. Production lasted quite a while, um, being quite complex to get in the can. I would guess location work was a factor. It wasn't just, uh, you, you couldn't just shoot um, effectively each and every day. The uh, Those elements looked um, 
challenging and needed to look uh, to uh, Wonka Wai's liking, I suppose. Uh, and the film was apparently budgeted at uh, 47 million Hong Kong dollars. And uh, when released in September 1994, audience didn't take to it a whole lot, uh, citing the vague plotting being a problem and uh, that a different take on Wuxia wasn't that compelling. And, and I guess a 9 million Hong Kong dollar take probably speaks volumes uh, in this, in this uh, regard, Kevin. Yeah, it's in the same way that Days of Being Wild uh, had huge expectations because of the cast. Same thing for Ashes of Time because, you know, it's it's general uh, Louis Chao and it has a huge cast uh, of those superstars. So there was a lot of huge expectations on what it was uh, going to do. But of course, when it came out, people realized it was an art film and no one really expected that, even though it was. And I think it's interesting that we chose this timing to record because it was actually released for Mid-Autumn Festival. Uh, back in 1994 so it was going to be a huge box office uh thing and then and then it didn't you know nine million it's it's certainly impressive by today's standard in hong kong film standard but you know but you can't make a film with that cast anymore in hong kong and a film with that cast in hong kong nine million dollars would be uh very disappointing and contrast that too with the the take of uh, eagle shooting heroes the year before for chinese new year which was uh 23 million i think right around that ballpark yeah, yeah. So, so they knew what they were doing. They knew that, like, yeah, we're making this art film that's not going to make any money. So we we need to make like a Chinese New Year movie with the same cast to well hold off the investors. They know, knowing that if they do a commercial comedy, that would make lots of money. Everybody act like loons. Money <laughs> and bless them for it. Uh, it fared pretty decently critically, though. Well, while uh, Ashes of Time, that is, while uh, so, some 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 were appreciating uh, Wong Kar Wai's refusal to do the expected high flying wuxia film. Uh, and uh, during awards season, it were it was received uh, well, winning three Hong Kong Film Awards. Um, technical though. Best Art Direction, uh, Christopher Doyle's uh, Cinematography uh, won that award, and Best Makeup and Costume Design was uh, highlighted as well. And while uh, Taiwan's Golden Horse Awards uh, gave the film uh, Best Cinematography and Editing, and the voting by the Hong Kong Film Critics Society Awards resulted in Ashes of Time being named Best Film of the Year. If you watched Hong Kong cinema at that time, you lived in Hong Kong during that time, that was when Wong Kar Wai was being made fun of the most because Hong Kong is a hyper-commercial film industry, right? Like, I know now everyone sort of lifted, elevated Wong Kar Wai to this pedestal of, you know, this holy deity of filmmaking, right? But back at, the, at that time, Hong Kong being this hyper-commercial film industry, they made fun of Wong Kar Wai. They mocked Wong Kar Wai for, you know, not falling in line with what everyone was doing. They were they all thought that he was making films that no one understood. And, of course, there were art film buffs who appreciated it. But then most of the time in mainstream entertainment, especially if you watch uh, Wong Jing's film, there was a film uh, where he actually made fun of Wong Kar Wai explicitly with, with character. That's like a caricature of Wong Kar Wai. So... At that point in time, up to probably before um, In the Mood for Love, he was very, he was just as much made fun of as he was appreciated. So it was a very device, he's a very divisive figure in Hong Kong film world at one point. Yeah, that's probably uh, the movie Whatever You Want you're referencing with Anita Yun and Michael Wong. They go to the cinema, they watch a midnight screening, or at least a, a screening with, um, you know, there's not a whole ton of people there, but there's some vocal. Uh, audience critics uh, and the director is sitting uh, in uh, the screening uh, so uh, there's someone playing a Wong Kar Wai type uh, and in the movie uh, Lo Ying does uh, select uh, he, he appears as the Ashes of Time characters in select little uh, 
uh, snippets parodying Ashes of Time. I think those are hysterical <laughs> because I love Lo Ying uh, when he when he's a goofball. He's a wonderful actor, but when he's a goofball, and I think in the movie they happen upon like a movie shoot. And someone is uh, dressed like, oh, look at that. That reminds us of uh, Bridget Lin from Shunking Express. And he turns around and it's, uh, it's Lo Ying in drag. Hardy horror. But uh, hey, uh, Wong Jing makes fun of himself in that very movie as well. So, um, Which is it, it's an interesting parallel because, you know, as Kevin talks about in this period of time, how, you know, uh, Wong Kar Wai is seen as this this kind of outsider. That That's kind of the same relationship that some of these characters have. Uh, to each other and to other martial artists, right? Uh, we'll talk about this character, uh, Wang Yao Shi, who's played by uh, Big Tony in this film, uh, who's referred to as Eastern Evil, but in other iterations, he's referred to as Eastern Heretic. He's a heretic because his style of martial arts are are non-Orthodox. He doesn't belong to the Orthodox groups of martial artists that are out there that follow rigid sets of rules and and codes. He does his own thing, but he ends up being considered perhaps the top martial artist, right, um, later on. So, you know, in some ways it's it's the same, whereas, you know, Wong Kar Wai during this period, um, he's this outsider. He's this heretic against the sort of orthodox commercialized ways of doing Hong Kong cinema. Uh, and then he kind of outlasts everything. And also, uh, Wuxia of the 90s was uh, not at its strongest in the mid-90s. So that's a great point to start varying things up. Um, so um, Because uh, we'd had our five years of Swordsman and Once Upon a Time in China and Wang Jing making his versions of that and everyone else at the same time. So uh, it's a good time to do something new. So uh, I, I certainly admire Ashes of Time for that. Uh, we're not quite at the review, but I remember reading a review or two about it um, that either personally it was where the writer was sort of displeased or was quoting dissatisfaction from fans of Legend of the Condor Heroes that they were sort of angry at the character depiction Wong Kar Wai chose uh, for instance uh, uh, Leslie Chung's uh, character they, they were vocal about uh, being, being displeased about how he handled his character uh, the film uh, deals with his uh, transformation into a more villainous persona uh, but it said um, referencing that uh, review that that's sometimes that journey in the movie here sometimes completely subverts the intent and the meaning of the novel and the character's journey and for instance uh, his intimacy with his sister-in-law is depicted as taboo and sinister in the novel but Wong Kawai goes for a romantic angle here instead and that becomes an emotional anchor in the film I, I don't know if you Paul had had any thoughts on that scene in the movie back then or now where that where Wong Kawai goes the other way so so intensely that he that 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 opens up opens him up rightly for criticism or is this a case of they've done this so many times why not why not play a little with it too well i mean here's the thing what they're talking about here is only ever alluded to in in the novel right this is this film is a prequel and it is a fan fiction (laughs) right (laughs) really because it's not considered you know official or canon or anything i don't think lewis chow ever signed off on it maybe he did but I mean, t- technically, it is a it is a fan fiction of of a sort, and you you do have a character, one of the antagonists, um, along with Ouyang Fang or Western Poison, as he's referred to, um, the Leslie character here. They they are kind of the big antagonists. Uh, him and he, he he has a nephew. They are the big antagonists of of this first series. And this reference with, you know, with, without giving too much as a spoiler here. Because it's a big plot point in, in the first series. But this this reference is alluded to. 
they never really get into, I mean, is it taboo? Well, obviously it's taboo. It's taboo in most societies. So, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. But could it have been romantic? They never really, they never really touch on that uh, in, in the novel and in the series that discuss it, you know, the, this aspect, the way they, the, the way it comes out as a reveal. So I didn't have a problem with that part. You know, you know, it's, it's like, you know, again, going back and doing a prequel of something, people are not always going to be happy. Right. Look at the Star Wars prequels. People were not happy. They had different ideas of, you know, what was the origin of Darth Vader? Oh, as a kid's a pod racer. Right. Not happy. But you have this story that he's telling. My bigger problem was that they kind of positioned Leslie as this assassin character. The characters in this, uh, Leslie's character, Big Tony's character, even uh, Jackie's character. I mean, these are big, big players in the background of the first story and and part of the second series. I mean, big players. These, these are the what are known as the five greats. Now, not all five of them appear in Ashes of Time. You've got uh, really three of them who make a presence. But the five greats are the top, top, top martial artists of the martial world. And when Legend of the Condor Heroes kicks off, they establish themselves as the top guys like two decades prior. So they're already super famous. You know, I won't get too deep into that because we're going to talk more about that maybe when we cover Eagle Shooting Heroes. But the idea here is, is that um, he, he's playing with the this idea of Leslie as an assassin and all of these guys as swordsmen, sword, you know, mercenary swords for hire, basically. And none of them use swords <laughs> in the main <laughs> series. You know, Ouyang Feng, Western Poison, uh, his big thing is becoming the top martial artists he has martial skills his biggest skill that he's known for is frog style okay hmm. this frog attack if you've seen kung fu hustle okay the frog that that was taken right from ouyang Feng in you know legend of the condor heroes there's no frog style here you know he's using a sword he never uses a sword um, none of the characters do they're known for their different martial schools hand techniques kicking techniques that kind of stuff so to turn it into this swordplay thing already is a deviation from the characters themselves. So I could see how that rubbed people the wrong way. It rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. You know, back in the day, I've kind of come to accept it with, I think, Jackie Chung's character, who goes on to become Northern Beggar. They, they talk a little bit about why that happens, because something happens to him in this film. But that's a bigger sticking point than the relationship that that is there that does exist and they expand on that expansion didn't bother me at all yeah i know i think i think that you know Wong Kar Wai isn't interested in recreating the characters i think he just wanted to use them as as pawns for his romantic uh, longings and and whatever he wants to write about um and, but i i know that he is a big fan of that world obviously i mean that's why he chose to take it on um just like many people in his generation are fans of those stories but i think he wasn't interested in doing what everyone else has done before he kind of wanted to use those character and talk about and reimagine them as breathing living beings with longing and desires and for me i guess as a as a someone who just knows them casually i think i kind of i'm kind of okay with him not sticking to the canon on on this one and we'll certainly get into the movie review and see how, how it all plays out in um, in his own 
context uh, but uh, we'll we'll get to that uh, shortly but there, there should be a mention of course of uh, Wonka Wai's revisit to Ashes of Time in the form of the new cut Ashes of Time Redux released in 2008 this was considered a controversial update and some of the things I'm going to mention I, I, I can't fully confirm because I don't know, I haven't looked in the vaults, let's just say, but uh, I, I clarified that, that in a bit. Uh, Wong Kawai said he wanted to revisit this one due to being dissatisfied with uh, how it was assembled in the first place, uh, technically for one, and uh, the 2008 revisit was his attempt to craft a definitive version of, of a film, of his film, which is obviously a, Something directors do uh, left and right uh, here, talking whether James Cameron or Ridley Scott or whatever. Uh, the film also tended to be uh, a bit elusive on home video markets as well, uh, up to that point. And now you can get the Redux version quite easily, but uh, the, the original is still um, is still hard to get. So he, he sold it in a way, but not for the original version. There's reports, and this what I, is what I can't confirm, but there's reports of the original negative of Ashes of Time being lost or unavailable at the time, since the lab that stored it uh, closed, or that the negative was in such bad shape uh, partially that there was no way to deconstruct or rather reconstruct the original. They did go out and look, the, the, the team that assembled the, uh, the Redux version and worked on it, they relied on other sources, uh, like European copies of prints from Chinatown uh, theaters, uh, as they gathered the film elements in place and apparently even the music track was damaged to the degree where Wong Kawai went for a partially re-recorded uh, soundtrack but he also felt the pieces um, within the score uh, that they were dated personally so the Redux score was sort of a mixture between old and new and ultimately the disc cut is actually shorter than the original Hong Kong version by about seven to eight minutes uh, there's some rearranging of scenes uh, the color timing is changed and uh, and uh, this is not a podcast to highlight this without visual means, uh, uh, but perhaps some stuff will come up naturally in the discussion. But I wanted to ask the room uh, if we start uh, with you, Kevin, for instance, considering this was one tweak that he did. But, you know, during the last year or two, Wong Kawai has done further tweaks to his movies, including changing the aspect ratio of one and changing the color timing. So do, do you personally buy that, it, that it's all a matter of, well, the negatives are lost, we, our hands were tied and we were forced to recreate the film? Or is it a case of the director not being able to stop fiddling with his old projects? I, I think with the fiddling of the uh, latest uh, set of films for his uh, remastered box set, I think we know that he is very much in love with um, fiddling with his films. I think that he, be he believes that his films belong to him and him alone, and that he is welcome or he's free to, what's the word, uh, readjust them as he sees fit, and that's his power. Legally, they are his company's films. So, you know, he's, I believe I read somewhere on, on, on Wikipedia that the uh, story is that the original negative was damaged beyond repair. So he had to sort of um, redo all this. And the interesting thing is that the so-called Redux version doesn't even really remaster the image. It still looks terrible. I watched it on the big screen and it looks like it was from a VCD. So I think uh, he just really into he's well, I mean, plus he is right that if you watch this film in the 2000s in the age of digital, um, that film does look very much a product of his time. The synthesizer score, um, some of the, the sound, it's very much mono. So he is right that it does look dated even with even just 10 years after or 15 years after the fact um so i don't blame him for wanting to sort of modernize the film a little bit um and again this is right to do so but to make the um originals uh unavailable i mean that's the thing that sort of irks me the most 
Yeah, they're not lost. I mean, I have the Blu-rays. I, I ripped them already. They, they, he, he supposedly seen those remasters, or maybe he didn't. I'm not sure. But, but you know, he, he wants to keep filling his films, and that's his choice. And um, uh, I guess um, as long as I have the older versions, uh, I'm happy with that. But I can understand why he wanted to go back and do Ashes of Time. I mean, it is very much a product of his time, and also. The, the stuff that he deleted, there was stuff that he was forced to put in by his investors, uh, the, mainly the two action scenes, and there's stuff that he didn't want to put in, so so it's okay. I mean, he wants to take them out because he wants to make them his film, and that's that's fine. Absolutely. I, I agree with that um, if, if we focus on Ashes of Time specifically. Um, what about you, Paul? Do you think he, uh, do you think he, um, he could do with some uh, distance from his projects and not uh, try, and, <laughs> try and tweak them and perfect them in the age of... Uh, uh, everything needs to be green tinted. So my movie is now also green tinted. Should, should he just stop? I mean, I agree with Kevin. It's if if he's got the rights and they're his babies, let him do what he wants. Doesn't mean I have to like them. I mean, I you know George Lucas did his reissues of Star Wars. I prefer the originals. Um, you know, you can go and you can tweak stuff and tweak stuff. Even like the original Blade Runner with all, all the controversial narration. I like that version because that's the version I saw in the cinema. I like the director's cut too. That you know takes that that kind of noristic element out. So I think, ideally, in a perfect world for me, the director will say, "Here's the old version on disc, and the new version on disc, and the next new version on disc." You know, all in one nice package. But not everybody does that. Not everybody agrees to that. So that's fine. I mean, we have things we can choose. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a great fan of, for instance, in the mood for love, but uh, seeing those uh, comparisons between uh, the color timing, the new color timing, and the old color timing, I've vastly preferred the old color timing. I'm I'm not a fan of um, that green tint. That that was my snog before. So. I'm waiting for the augmented reality version that where we can get in there and we can dance with Tony and Maggie at the same time. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Excuse me, Tony. Let me. <laughs> you go away. Hello, Maggie. Uh, okay, okay, guys. Uh, let's get into the review and uh, some short opinions here. Uh, the, 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 for me, uh, the, this is a difficult one. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not a great fan of his entire uh, filmography as such, but I've I've always been more in favor of this one. It's still a difficult one. It, it's it's designed as a character puzzle, and most of the time you keep up because Wong Kar Wai uses enough clarity and voiceover narration to make us understand these episodes connected to longing and the past and. Uh, the visual and physical context of the martial world is appealing because I'm a fan of the genre. It offers up a unique perspective of what we knew of the 90s wuxia film. This is not what you consider a typical 90s wuxia film. So the the action isn't the main drive and that's absolutely okay. I welcome that. But as for getting me emotionally involved and stirred and feeling like uh, I want to explore this again because uh, it's such a complex tapestry. I want to rewatch it again. Because I was so emotionally hooked and I want to be more emotionally hooked. I don't get that impact personally. Um, the, the intent and structure of the episodes, uh, again the longing, generates some emotional payoff. But not across the board. And that's why I feel like th- this is a one of those more... I'll, I'll watch it every now and again, but certainly not often. Uh, and, and maybe the, the, the style and theme is that may, for me, not via this execution anyway. I think it's worth watching, but I'm, um, I felt a little cold. Yeah, going out of it um, this time around. So, uh, let me uh, go around the room again. Why don't you? We start with you, Kevin, with some short opinions. Uh, first of all, I think that um, of course I'm not purist in terms of uh, 
Jin Rong novels. I am a Wong Kar Wai fan, and uh, it's not my favorite Wong Kar Wai film. Actually, it's it's not quite there. But and I watched it quite late in my fandom. I didn't watch it until the Redux version actually uh, when it came out in theaters uh, about ten years ago in Hong Kong. So for me, it's not one of my favorite Wong Kar Wai, but it is very consistent in what he's done. Uh, actually, I find I find the Grandmaster sort of the outlier because there he's actually getting into the martial arts world and it's a lot of philosophy about the martial arts world, which is not what Wong Kar Wai is usually into. He's much more usually into um, romantic musings and longing and things like that. And in that sense, um, Ash's time is very, very consistent. And and I'm saying this ha- only half facetiously, but actually I'm, I'm half serious, is that you can now watch it. It's better understood now watching it as sort of an episodic web series. Because it is very much evenly split into five acts or six acts of these different stories. And it does get tiring to watch it all at once. But if you watch them episode by episode, it makes a lot more sense sort of how he made this film, which is he probably had no script. He probably um, just shot whatever he wanted. He was writing it uh, while he was shooting it. And they put together, put it together into one film um, on uh, in the editing bay. And in that sense, it makes a lot more sense by watching it you know, bits and pieces, 20 minutes at a time or however long each episode is. And in that sense, the film makes more sense. And it's actually not very complex in that way. It's just an episodic web series that happens to be around this one character who lives in the desert. Uh, what about you, Paul? Would that be your preferred uh, viewing or you like to take uh, in Ashes of Time in one 99-minute emotional longing chunk? Yeah, I mean, I, I have the old uh, Mayod DVD and that's the one I return to. I've not seen the redo or redux version I thought about watching it for for this, but then I saw the price. I'm like, no, nah, I'm good with mine. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, you know, I, I like that version. And it for a long time, it was my favorite Wong Kar Wai movie. People who've heard me talk before know I'm I'm a Wong Jing fan, not so much a Wong Kar Wai fan. I can appreciate the stuff that he does, um, but it's not something that I find has a lot of repeat value for me in terms of wanting to go back and rewatch stuff. I can rewatch Eagle shooting heroes all the time. I can just throw it on all day, any day. Ashes of time. I, I like, and I can rewatch it. Um, you know, happy together. Not so much other stuff in, in the Wonka Wai filmography, not so much with the exception of the grandmaster, which I, I, I think came along and, and rivaled, uh, my fandom for Ashes of Time, and again, like Ashes, it's not—it's not an accurate portrayal of Ip Man's life at all. The characters outside of Ip Man are far more interesting in that uh, than Ip Man himself. But uh, I love what he did. I love the visuals, um, I, and and I do like the story in there. So you know, that's me. I'm a geeky nerd. I'm a genuine nerd. So I, I'm drawn to this. There are things that I don't like about it, but there's a lot that I do like about it. And that's what I did, by the way, uh, speaking of uh, splitting up the viewing. Uh, I split it up in two just because uh, I, f- I felt kind of drained watching uh, this theme play out throughout these episodes in one 99-minute chunk. It's not a long movie. That that made sense, this viewing. Um, I, I, and again, uh, to have the all-too-familiar Wuxia film of the 90s take on a different flying form is very good. I mean, Blade, uh, Choi Hak's movie subverted it all to a degree it made it more highly stylized and dirty and almost documentary in feel and its incoherent visual style partly made sense for that edgy world and its battles so and, and that came out at the same time and bombed as well i believe 
uh, certainly made no 9 million. <laughs> I know that for, for Blade. And uh, for a maker to go his own way um, and not the path of Choi Hak, in this case, uh, this isn't Once Upon a Time in China, it is a Choi Hak film, that's absolutely fine. And, and he sort of announces uh, Wong Kar Wai via the first fight. Uh, uh, glimpses that uh, while you you said Kevin that this was uh, sort of demand uh, by by investors to 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 spice it up action wise, there's still some atmos here. There's uh, still a, a cool sense of the floaty powers and the elegant heroes and that burst that we get initially, while blurry and uh, quick cut uh, is exciting and it's atmos- atmospheric to a degree. But this world doesn't have, you know, the battlefield turmoil. It's going to turn into the turmoil that's in the characters' uh, hearts. And that's going to be the main uh, main focus uh, of it all. So um, I'm, I'm not a fan of all the action scenes. If we talk of the, them aiding the style of the movie and aiding the atmosphere of the movie, I think some are genuinely just incoherent and, uh, and blurry and uh, confusing and... Uh, uh, whether that blame should be placed on Sam Hong, the action director, because his action tended to look like this uh, too, I can't say for sure. There's also multiple cinematographers listed on this film, not just um, uh, functioning drunk uh, Christopher Doyle, uh, <laughs> who I love, by the way. I love Chris Doyle, but, uh, but, but that's always. Um, so, so I don't know if uh, that uh, particular style, who we can sort of blame or uh, hail for, the way it looks but it certainly isn't the main drive of the film there's like three uh, action scenes um, uh, action scenes here so uh so so really uh, it, go, it goes into its dramatic drive and uh, focus on leslie cut from malevolent leslie to someone who clearly doesn't look like he's uh, transitioning to evil and then he starts meeting the various characters and we we get a multiple amount of um of uh, sit-downs uh, here in the, these uh, in these isolated environments, and it's not the martial world that we're we're used to. And again, that's certainly not a bad thing. But and he verbalizes a lot of things about um, uh, the dangers of memories and uh, obsession, uh, obsessing on memories, and it's very open, very on the nose. And uh, partially that works for me. Uh, partially the theme of uh, the longing works for me, but not in all episodes. I think I'll, I'll get to that note that mainly in the Bridget Lynn episode, I think uh, that, that's a major highlight because that got to me emotionally. But other times uh, I got kind of um, winded um, uh, seeing uh, these characters uh, sit down and talk about longing and uh, uh, it was not uh, across the board uh, effectively. But then again, you can't complain about the cost that's here, so uh, so there is that. So, if I stop there, if I, if I asked you, Paul, uh, across these various episodes, they share themes to an extent. So, in, in general, do, do you think there is an effective exploration of longing and uh, letting go of the past, whether you let go in a positive way or let go where you actually go uh, a sort of evil path, uh, literally? So, is that an examination that uh, gets to you when you watch this? I mean, yeah, it's there. <laughs> It's it's not what I look for. I was really more interested in seeing the character connections and relationships that he was exploring more so than the longing aspect. I mean, that that longing aspect is a a theme that he touches on in a lot of his works. So that was never a a big draw for me. I like that he's playing in this world and, you know, then at times he shakes the camera around. So. (laughs) Uh, What about you, Kevin? Is there an, an emotional hook here? that gets to you is that an episode by episode basis type of impact it's sort of hit and miss but 
for me, I mean, Wong Kar Wai's brand emo, I mean, really works for me because I'm an emo kid. Well, I'm uh, uh, to put it like this, um, I had an ex-girlfriend who was very much into wuxia novels, but she's also a hipster, and she was a huge, huge fan of Ashes of Time. So it, it, we just really have to find that Venn diagram of sort of hip young people, people who read a lot of books, and also who happens to be wuxia fans, and they would love Ashes of Time because it hits both both things for them. You know, having these characters from the from the Jim Rome stuff, and and also touches on the the sort of their emotional world. Uh, it really works for them. For me. It's fine. I mean, for, like I said, it's very consistent what I appreciate uh, watching in Wong Kar Wai films, which is those romantic lines and stuff like that. So thematically, it was consistent. And I like I watch Wong Kar Wai films for that kind of stuff. So for me, it was OK. Like I said, it's 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 episodic. So, yes, um, one episode could be dealing with events that happened before one episode. Or the first one maybe jumps ahead um, and things like that. But overall, I think it's better to watch it as sort of a. This episode of Ashes of Time, Leslie Chen encounters this character. So kind of watch it and sort of a day in the life of this character each episode by each episode. That's, I think, the best way to make sense of it as rather than trying to see as one big narrative. Yeah, because I there's flashes of character interaction and then flashes of other characters in very rapid fashion. And and obviously that that's the way he preferred the structure of it all um, to, to begin. Yeah, actually... The, the Redux version, I think, clears that up a little bit. So the characters aren't mixed together. I think it's more, even more episodic. It's a bit more split. So you do feel that that split between when each one character shows up, does his thing or her thing, and they move on to the next character. I think it's a little less, less mixed together like this. That was not necessarily something I I, I kept up well enough. It, it was just that the the emotional impact of each episode differed for me again the Bridget Lynn one was better but but it wasn't necessarily like clear cut at all times because we briefly see Karina Lau at one point and she this is gonna sound wrong but I'm gonna say it anyway her intense longing while on a horse which sounds way dirtier than I meant many too and it's like well it's well I hope it pays off because I don't get this uh, and and then they're 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 dealing with you know the either magical potion or the actual not magical potion of the martial world where um, someone can be served a particular drink and they forget about the past and that's feeds into the martial world and one kawaii's theme I, I suppose so but okay it, it's fine be un- unconventional and uh, vary up the the genre because we we were so many years into wuxia of the nineties we got an overabundance of them I found it hard to get further into it until we got to Bridget Lynn's uh, uh, story of duality, I suppose. Uh, because I think it felt like, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I don't know if you caught this, Paul, it felt like the longer episode of Leslie Chung and the two Bridget Lynn's. And therefore, it, uh, the linear aspect was there for me. The emotional impact of uh, of her story was there and the style within it while sometimes annoying, uh, the, the various s- shots of uh, having monologues in front of the uh, the revolving uh, lantern was kind of annoying. But still, it, for, for me, it felt like the longer episode and therefore the more effective episode. It wasn't as fragmented seeing Leslie and Bridget Lynn go through their particular drama. It's there. The, the Bridget Lynn character is is interesting and kind of weird to understand at the same time until you get the reveal of what's actually going on. And and I mean that's a there there are interesting parallels to that character and what she represents and especially if you expand out again to other characters that were written in the 
the Louis Cha universe, like um, Evil Asia from from the Swordsman two and 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 Swordsman three film that she also played, and then you know this this idea of transformation which is existent in in, in martial arts and that character uh, I forget what they call her at the end, but that character that she goes on to become in this film is also another reference to like a super high level martial artist that gets mentioned in multiple, not just the Condor Hero series, but apparently she's mentioned in, or he's mentioned in multiple iterations from other novels as well. Um, so again, he's he's playing with uh, diff- different ideas, not just sort of the, the, the central three characters that he's borrowed. Now, Karina and the horse, I have no idea. I, I really that's that's a, that's a creation of his own. I, I I guess you know they had the horse and they had Karina and they're like okay let's just play in this space. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I I I I still upon multiple watchings I'm like I'm not sure you know is this an Oedipal complex or you know uh, or sorry an, you know like an Equus thing or or what's going what's going on here it, it, with this I I'm not sure what he's trying to say. And so I just leave it at that, and I wait until it gets back to Jackie Chung. <laughs> I, I just like to add, I just like to add that my last name literally means horse in Chinese, so I I don't mind at all. <laughs> I'm okay. With this. Well, well, well. There's there's confusion, but there's a lot of filler gone. I think by by design, characters don't travel; they appear. They're 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 hopped, uh, and uh, so he streamlines it that way and it's not terribly confusing but uh, there's a lot of uh, as Bruce Willis would say chuffa gone you know uh, they, uh, will, they they forward the story they, they for uh, or rather favor uh, sitting down uh, with each other you know for uh, to analyze the current conflicts and their emotional longing and who is connected to who and so forth and uh, I think uh, as sort of whole guy as I sometimes feel these types of monologues are uh, where you monologue clinging to the wall in a very theatrical way. I think Bridget Lane is very good at communicating that longing and we get some sort of rapid editing between her sort of say male form and her female form and the sort of, without spoiling it, the sort of cap to her story I, I thought was very satisfying because it really, it wasn't an emotional cleansing in a positive way. That um, character goes forward in the martial world and um, they're still sort of torment and, and uh, wounded insides, if you will. And I, I, I thought that uh, hit the nail on the head quite, quite effectively for me. And I guess being a Hong Kong filmmaker, sh- shooting without a script, as you said, Kevin, means that even with such a cost, they're not all going to get the premium writing. And uh, maybe better, more attentive viewers can figure out how seamless and how perfect Charlie Young's inclusion is here that's when when i sit there okay let this episode play out and l- let's see if there's an emotional uh, payoff akin to the bridget lynn story in the end and it's one of those sort of stories and connections that uh, kind of flies over my head and I, I start to get frustrated with the style and i guess that's either because i'm not smart enough for the style or it's a sign of this is how they made it it's a little, a little more slapdash a little bit uh, spontaneous and uh, stream of consciousness and that's how art films sometimes end up i don't know but it started to get a little bit frustrating when uh when it didn't click with me emotionally but you know it's it's obviously very uh, very personal and uh i um i suppose um, other viewers get uh, an emotional uh payoff across the various episodes but uh I, you know for, for instance as much as i like the tony lung chui episode i only remember sort of his uh blind swordsman uh fight scene 
And I don't think that's good enough when you don't remember Tony Long Chiu-Wai's story in a film. So I don't know. Uh, do you think that's the case, Kevin, that uh, some of the actors get more attention uh, in the final edit than some actors simply don't? Like Charlie, like the various Tonys. Well, I mean, you got to pour a bottle out for Joey Wang, who only, who's only in the original version for eight seconds before she's completely cut out of the Redux version. So, yeah, it, it happens on a more Kawhi film. You get... You get asked to to be in the desert for a few months and to do a film, and then you get completely cut out because one car I felt like it. I I, I heard so I heard something um, whether it's true or not that um, Joey Wong was in the movie just to appease um, like uh, either Taiwanese or even Korean investors. Yeah, because she was listed uh, she was listed as a cast member when they were doing pre-sales, and then when he decided that maybe he didn't want her character, but then he had to keep her in anyway because that was how the Taiwanese that's why the Taiwanese investors invested, so or part of the reason why. So he had to keep her in there for just for eight seconds to appease them, um, and then completely cut her out of the redux. So that's that's something that he does, you know. Um, be, by the way, I mean talk about original casting decisions. Actually, Tony Leung was supposed to be playing uh, Leslie Turn's role. He, that, that's how they began. Which Tony? They began. Tony Learn Shiwai was playing. Sorry, I knew there were two Tony Learns <laughs> in this film. Tony Learn Shiwai was supposed to play uh, Leslie Learn Leslie Chen's role, and Leslie is supposed to play Tony Learn Kafai's role. And then a month in, uh, Wong Kar decided, wait, that's not a good idea. Why don't you guys go shoot Eagle Shooting Heroes first, and then come back and we cast the entire thing? And then that's how that's how he works. And as for the balance or whatever, I mean. I think Wong Kar Wai is very much of the, of the um, school that he sort of edits on a whim. Not whim, but he does kind of what he feels. Um, I wouldn't say a stream of consciousness, because when you, if you know anything about filmmaking, you know, people who watch, when you're post-production, they watch a film about 200 times before it goes out into the world. So it's impossible to be working on a stream of consciousness. But for him, at the time, it works. Maybe perhaps that's why he likes to fiddle his projects so much because he realizes that they were his whims at a time and now his whims have changed um, and that's why he keeps working his films. You you, you mentioned, Paul, that uh, Jackie Chung's character uh, uh, Hong Chi, you, you hinted that um, he didn't have uh, enough of a presence here for you that he uh, his uh, his uh, fan fiction story wasn't uh, to your liking or uh, because you like that story in the actual novels or what's the deal there for you okay so the the character the five great characters that are referred to in, in the main story are directional they have the, they have regular names like you know in this um leslie is oh yeah fang okay but his his directional name is western poison and in part because he uses poisons and snakes and things. We, we don't get any of that here. So, But uh, Big Tony is Eastern Evil or Eastern Heretic. Um, then you have uh, Central Divine, who's um, another character who's mentioned. And then you have uh, Southern King or Southern Emperor. So those are, those are the five greats. We get three of them here with Leslie, Big Tony, and Jackie. Now, Jackie's character, Northern Beggar, and Ouyang Fang, uh, Western Poison, are frenemies through much of the series. They they are friendly and enemies at the same time. Um, they respect each other, but they're constantly trying to outdo each other. And Western Poison is is a bad guy. I mean, he's basically out for himself. He has he has one goal to become the top martial artist and to get this super kung fu manual, and that's his main motivation through um, the, the 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 first series. Whereas Northern Beggar is like this 
righteous. He, he, he's the king of beggars, right? So again, think of the Stephen Chow movie, King of Beggars. That's that's his his role in this. And he ultimately is, ultimately is going to pass that on throughout the course of the series. But he's noble. He's righteous. He helps people in trouble. He, he you know, again, has really great kung fu. And he uses the thing called the dog, the dog beating staff. That's the science sort of the sign of his king of beggarhood, if you will. But here, I mean, Jackie is just a mercenary. You know, he's going out and and subcontracting for Tony. I mean, for Leslie's character, right? And he's like, well, Leslie's like, oh, I don't want to do this. You want to do this? You know, you go take this job. <laughs> it's like, all right, you know, okay. It's not really, he doesn't have the same sensibilities as the character has written. They've changed it. They've made him, you know, less heroic in, in some ways, less righteous. But, you know, I, I love seeing Jackie on screen. It's great. And uh, we get to see him do this role again. <laughs> he's the only one who does the role twice. Uh, in Eagle Shooting Heroes, so and it's a very different take on it. Who who was Ou Yang Feng in Eagle Shooting Heroes, if not Little Tony? Little Tony, yeah. Okay, cool. The the, the best role in that one because he gets fucked up. <laughs> and then Leslie becomes Big Tony's role with um, <laughs> as Eastern Evil Huang Hoshi. and Big right, Tony. So that's the, yeah, so that was the original <laughs> casting. Yeah, yeah. So so Eagle Shooting Heroes retained the original casting. That one car wanted to do, which is why you have Lunkafai playing Southern King and Veronica Yip and all those. Those were the original ideas for the original Ashes of Time cast. <laughs> well, well, we, we'll we'll certainly get the eagle shooting heroes. Um, and, and and you know what? We mentioned Maggie, and she, she certainly comes in by the end. We we're certainly not going to spoil, you know, what her dialogue is about and her monologue is about. But I think by that point, I was satisfied with some episodes. As I said, uh, even the Jackie Chung one ends on. It seemed that way a little bit, uh, a bit more optimism. Uh, a couple walk, w- walked off screen in that case. He wasn't just a wandering swordsman by, by himself. But th- there's a few bits in Leslie's uh, dialogue where he mentioned, like, now I understand, or I suddenly understood this and this. And that was something I, I wasn't caught up with that, nor got that. And that started to feel frustrating. Uh, no, I don't understand, though. What what do you understand? And I think I'm being left out of the narrative here, and that's not quite acceptable to me. That the pieces are being being put down by the character, but not me. But again, not smart enough to handle handle this. So, and even you know, Ma- Maggie has relatable and emotional dialogue, and it connects back to Leslie. And uh, but but I didn't feel like this uh, this fan fiction tied the knot emotionally, where we understood firmly why Ouyang Feng was the character he's at the beginning of the movie. The one that gleefully enjoys evil. That that wasn't this emotional freight train that hit me. And I don't know if it's supposed to necessarily, but I always gathered that other viewers of Wong Kar Wai movies, whether this or, or uh, other movies, they're, they're a bit more tuned into that and I, and, and I can't connect to it in most of his movies, this uh, this theme of longing. It works a little bit here. So so for, so, so for instance, that journey, as fragmented as it might be in, within Ashes of Time for Ouyang Feng, it, it didn't really get to me. And I think uh, it starts to peter out towards the end of these 99 minutes. Even though Ma- Maggie looks lovely and it's uh, she commits, but... Um, the the non-linear narrative where we start with Leslie's character in one in one way and uh, the movie then builds towards that. I didn't think there was a payoff for that, but I don't know what you guys think. Maybe Wonka Wai wasn't aiming for this 
this emotional freight train to get to the viewer towards the end. Oh my god, I just went through something with Leslie. What do you think, Kevin, in terms of that? Is there, is there supposed to be something you, uh, something tear-inducing, tear uh, watching Leslie go from this person to this person, or Wong Kar isn't aiming for that necessarily? I, I always say that, I always tell people that the, the hardest uh, viewing of a Wong Kar movie is the first time, because you don't know what it's up to, and it does meander. But once you rewatch his films and you get into his vibe and you know what he's doing, you know what's coming, you start to um, just sort of appreciate what these characters are doing, what these characters are saying and whatnot. For me, Leslie characters, I don't think he's inherently evil. I think he's very uh, there's a lot of these sort of characters in the Wuxia world that you read. I mean, the thing is, if you remember in The Move for Love, that, you know, these Wuxia stories, uh, these stories on a serial, they're just sort of pulpy um, stories that that people churn out quite quickly. And there are a set of archetypes and stereotypes and plot twists that people expect in the genre. Uh, just like the way that the Tony Leung character in The Move for Love just sort of chews them out. Like, oh yeah, this, this is a time where the beardy, bearded guy jumps in and there's the part where this happens, this is the part where this happens. And you're, as a Wuxia as a fan, you're like, ah, oh, those are kind of like the, the, the um, stereotypical plot twists. Um, so in that sense, you understand Leslie's character as a vagabond, you know, it's like one of those guys who got in trouble and became uh, sort of became a wanderer. And, you know, that uh, is in the Wuxia archetype a lot, the wandering hero or wandering anti-hero. So for me, it's OK. I, I think, it, again, of course, the first time you watch it is struggle. This is the third time, by the way, but my memory is shot. So uh, <laughs> that's a problem, too. <laughs> right, right, right. So the more I think I think part of the flavor or the, the enjoyment of Wong Kar Wai is if you're watching in Cantonese and you're getting into the di- the rhythm of his dialogue and you're getting into the, the philosophy, even though they're kind of shadow, uh, shallow in terms of the way they talk about romance and feeling about love and longing. You get into it, the more you view it and you get the rhythm and you listen to that. Di- you listen to the dialogue more than the character to him to i think even to Wong Kar Wai, his characters are just people who voice his dialogue and the and the thoughts that that these characters have are more important than the characters themselves or any sort of traditional narrative arcs and for me i'm as someone who's used to watching Wong Kar Wai, i'm okay with that and of course that's different and happy together you because the whole film is about two characters or three characters by the end of the film but most of the time they really are just sort of these uh, puppets or pawns who delivers what Wong Kar is thinking and that's what his fans like they like the dialogue more than the characters sometimes yeah, we, we, we actually get um, most of the time it looks like we get sync sound dialogue sometimes it sounds like uh, uh, dialogue recorded on set except Bridget Lynn of course uh, she presumably performed in Mandarin uh, so it, it feels um, a bit alive to hear uh, to hear the actual voices, even if fully dubbed. I I would have expected uh, most of these uh, guys and girls to um, perform their own post dub because uh, we normally got that with uh, with Leslie and uh, uh, the two Tonys and so forth. But um, right in Redux, uh, Redux, you hear Bridget Lynn's original voice in Mandarin. Okay, they do a little switch up there. Good, 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 good. Yeah, I yes. don't mind that. That's that, that's a neat solution uh, to make it a little bit more. Uh, vivid uh, because I also like her role uh, quite a bit and uh, always enjoy her as an actress um, so 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 yeah um, anything else you want to say Paul in terms of uh, when Wong Kar Wai starts to tie the knot uh, connecting Leslie and Maggie for instance uh, is that compelling at all uh, for him as um, as uh, he starts to uh, weave that emotional sort of uh, story it's fulfilling some you know fan fiction ideas in there I remember there's a, there's a sequence where Leslie's character is lying down and then 
I think it's Bridget's hand who's coming over him, but then he's imagining it's Maggie's hand at one point going like basically molesting him <laughs> while he's lying there and and going into his his tunic and everything. And I was like, yeah, this isn't really how I you know ever pictured seeing Ouyaofang, but okay, you know, I can roll with it. Uh, it's it's um I, I think that the sensibilities of 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 Wong Kar Wai and the sensuality that he likes to play with, is is not something that people really go into the Jin Young novels for. That you know, you do you, you like Kevin said, you know, Return of the Condor Heroes, uh, Yang Guo, Xiu Long Noi, they are considered like this this Romeo and Juliet paragon, right? Of of romantic couplehood. But the sensuality, sort of the the, the that that sense of sensuality and passion is not something that is ever highly on display. You do get moments of it you know, in there, but uh, it's it's not something that's highly visible from an aesthetic perspective, I think, that that really is what's, you know, in Wong Kar Wai's wheelhouse and what he's trying to play with. Uh, so, yeah, I, I actually don't have any other notes. Uh, they, they, these movies uh, continue to be um, a little bit of a struggle for me the older I get, and it comes down to preference as well, and uh, I watched Happy Together many, many years ago, and it didn't really connect with me. Might do, but I'm not... Um, really motivated right now to get the criterion puzzle box and uh, and uh, watch them uh, watch them anew but um still uh, I'm, I, I'm appreciative of uh, something like sts go by i haven't seen the grandmaster people say that's something you need to seek out because it uh, really gets things uh, right but ironically my favorite one kawaii movie is a short movie that uh, the bmw short movie the follow starring clive owen which I thought was a real neat merger of uh, that little story, but also, uh, you know, it wasn't an action piece. It had atmosphere, uh, great usage of uh, music, and uh, a nice uh, payoff after those uh, 10 minutes. So uh, that's something I would recommend that people to uh, seek out how Wonka Wai did in that English language venture. I've, I've never heard anyone say that, my Blueberry Nights is, uh, I don't know, I, everybody craps on it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a, a massive massive highlight in his filmography it seems like it's universal hatred for my blueberry nights but uh what do you think Kevin, if you uh, ever went down those uh, routes I, I wouldn't say hatred i mean it's certainly a weaker Wong Kar Wai film but i don't know uh if i can outright ever hate a Wong Kar Wai film except see you tomorrow which uh doesn't work for me but no i mean as i'm a Wong Kar Wai fan so i i can't say any any Wong Kar Wai film is is an outright disaster but uh it is uh, i will i will admit that it is one of his weaker efforts and there are reasons behind that but let's not go into it here uh, but any other final uh, notes that you have on Ashes of Time, Kevin? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not here to defend the film. I mean, like I said, it's not my favorite Wong Kar Wai film. And, um, but I am a big fan of Wong Kar Wai in general. And I do realize that his brand of stuff is not for everyone. So I can see why people don't like it. I can also see why his fans uh, love it. And I can definitely see why sort of hipster literary, um, you know, literary hipsters uh, who happen to also like Jin Rong, uh, do love the film so it's for me i'm all like very much both sides excellent uh, and what about you paul any final notes or anything else you want to mention from the film um no i would say that if you are somebody who you know is more interested in sort of the pop side dimensions as i said earlier there's lots of media out there that you can check out both in literary form visual form uh, and lengthy drama form uh, if you so desire we hinted at it uh, 
in terms of availability of this original version. Sadly, it's still not easy to own the original uh, version of Ashes of Time. Uh, Maya once issued it on uh, on DVD from the cinema print, maybe straight from the Laserdisc uh, with uh, burned in uh, subtitles. Uh, there was a Japanese edition without English uh, subtitles, um, which was the one I watched, but uh, a friend of mine added subtitles to that uh, version of the film. It doesn't look tremendous or anything, but it is the original version and number one on disc. Uh, the US DVD by World Video cropped the Chinese-English subtitles to make room for new ones as well, so that's obviously not a preferable viewing of the original version, having at least the bottom frame um, uh, taken out. And considering that some shots are framed, uh, across like uh, Leslie's uh, uh, face, his nose, you know, he, he's uh, and he's talking, but his uh, mouth is below the frame. Those scenes are gonna look wonderful <laughs> in the bottom cropped uh, uh, US DVD version. So that's uh, certainly not something to go for. Uh, but the Redux version, as we said, that's easy to get a hold of on both uh, Blu-ray, DVD, and surely digital and streaming. Uh, so uh, hopefully. I don't know what options you were looking at, uh, Paul, in terms of uh, the Redux version, but uh, uh, hopefully you didn't come across an, an insane uh, eBay auction of uh, I want 60 US dollars for the Blu-ray of the Redux version, or was it uh, too expensive on digital even for you to uh, take Yeah, it? it was like 10 bucks on digital. I'm like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, but I don't like it that much to, to just buy it to see the Redux version, and uh, I'm happy with my old disc. Thank you, guys. We uh, for um, for adding um, intelligent voices in the room. And before you say anything else, don't because uh, you do provide <laughs> that uh, that nuance so that I can't uh, by myself. Uh, and uh, so it's a very valuable discussion for me to listen to and to uh, uh, participate in. And uh, both for your perspective on Wong Kawai and for your perspective on uh, Jin Yong and uh, all that good stuff. So this is sort of the uh, emotional and somber excursion into the world of the condo heroes but in an episode that will follow this one uh, sometime soon if not uh, directly after we'll be looking at um, the silly version of uh, condo heroes uh, as envisioned by producer Wong Kawai and director Jeff Lau in the form of eagle shooting heroes and there's certainly some notes on how that came um, into into existence and um, so that's going to be a more relaxed episode where we get uh, um, about 145 minutes of uh, major stars major beautiful stars acting like crazy people and it's uh, within the context of the of the martial world storytelling so um, that's going to be our uh, sort of a sit back and relax type of episode going uh, through these uh, uh, these variations of uh, Legend of the Condor uh, heroes. So uh, we'll be back for that. But um, in the meantime, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to our website, podcastonfire.com, where you'll find the archive of uh, this particular show, our other shows, so social media links and all that good stuff. So I'm going to keep it short and throw over to uh, Paul for a little plug of uh, your podcast uh, once more. Yes, indeed. East Screen, West Screen over at concast.com. Uh, drop by and give us a listen if you like. And uh, this is probably going to drop in a few months, Kevin. So, uh, But uh, you're free to plug uh, whatever you want. And uh, if there's something that I can link to once I publish the the show uh, in terms of uh, your endeavors are now out in the open, I certainly will. So plug away in uh, whatever way you like. Well, if this goes out before November, I'm going to be uh, interpreting for Stanley Kwan for a masterclass for the Hawaii Film Festival, and that should be available to watch online. 
otherwise, I mean, films that I do, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I will promote them. <laughs> so you can come and follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Excellent, guys. Well, deep thanks and appreciation for uh, helping me to uh, liven up uh, this episode and bring uh, bring a bit of context and nuance. So I'm very grateful for that because uh, these movies are um, a challenge for me. Silly Wonka, why I can do it in my sleep because that's uh, that's uh, marvelous. Like uh, Haunted Cop Shop uh, episodes, uh, Haunted Cop Shop one and two. If a script by Wonka, why I can do that any time of the day. But uh, this needed uh, some uh, uh, knowledgeable knowledgeable gents so thank you for that guys and before you say anything don't accept uh, the little, little sign off from from uh, from you guys and we're gonna do that right, do that right now so i've been uh, can be with me was uh, paul fox of the east green west green podcast so say, say your goodbyes paul. bye-bye and bye also, and also kevin ma yes kevin ma was here yep. so yeah <laughs> yep. bye guys I'm used to following Paul, you know. I'm like, I'm like always at the end of the podcast. There's a set script, and uh, I, I know, I know where you're coming from. It's uh, everything needs to happen in a certain way, so I don't mind that. But uh, that's a little, uh, that's a good way for us to sort of fade out, and that's that's the end of the episode.